All right, please open your Bibles to Judges chapter 15. If you're using uh, one of the Bibles in the uh, racks in front of your seat, uh, it's page 201. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20 of Judges 15. And as is our custom here at ECPC, I'm going to invite you to stand during the reading of God's Word. You're not going to stand the whole sermon, so that's good news. But just for a minute or two, you're going to stand as a way of being especially attentive to what God is saying to us, because we believe that document is, um, number one, God speaking to us. So the God who created you, your maker, is saying to you these words I'm about to read. And then it's this is a living and active supernatural experience to receive the word of God. Um, we live primarily by, by what God shows us in the Word. So with that in mind, put your full attention on verse 9 of Judges 15. Then the Philistines came up, and they encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said, They said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it, he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a 1,000 men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Remach Lehi. And he was very thirsty. And he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he it is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. Y'all can have a seat. Jesus, we thank you for emphasizing the absolute necessity of your word. Thank you for your words uh, where you say it's, it's true that we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Thank you for drawing us to this place, whether we come with voracious appetites for the word uh, or whether we're just kind of here out of a, a sense of routine. Uh, we pray that you would right now um, pique our interest and make us deeply, deeply receptive to what you are revealing to us, Um, not ultimately about Samson, but what you are revealing to us ultimately about Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, Here's my question for you guys. Have you ever 
actually taken a, a thorough look at your phone bill? Have you ever actually looked at the details of the phone bill? And, and per, perhaps specifically, have you ever uh, surveyed the, the specific charges that show up on a phone bill? Now, now this isn't from North Carolina. This is um, from a phone bill in, in New York City because it's more superlative and it makes my point. But here's what you'd see if you looked at a phone bill, uh, maybe your own, but certainly from New York. You'd find an administrative fee, a county receipts surcharge, whatever that is. Federal universal surcharge, telecom surcharge, regulatory cost recovery charge, state telecommu telecommunications excise surcharge. And it just keeps going. This is clearly, um, I just learned this word this past week, a boondoggle. It's a racket. It's, it's a ripoff. What are these charges? They're just made up. And we know that, you know, as much, uh, as much as this is a racket, we just have to roll with it. It's just the way it is. It's the status quo. And, and we know it's oppressive. And, and it's not just the fees that are oppressive. We know that our phones have like taken over our lives. Like even our phones are concerned with how much we are on our phones. They report screen time and they, they essentially say, are you okay? You're looking at me a lot. Uh, I noticed you were looking at me while driving the other day. It's physically dangerous. Like you're, you're running these comparisons with all your friends on social media. It's, it's destroying your mental health and your relational health is going down. It's just all around, it's, it's oppressive and bad. But here's the thing, we're, we're accustomed to it. Like we, we need our phones. We're desperately reliant on them. And so now imagine if someone came along and they, whether they knew they were doing this or not, they disrupted the status quo of phonedom. They disrupted it. So like now cell phone service isn't reliable. Your internet connection is always failing. You can't open the apps on your phone and run them you know, throughout the day. That, you need these, these apps. You need, need to be able to use your phone, and, and that gets disrupted. Now, I think we can all admit we would go to that person, or we'd send a delegation of people to that person who was disrupting the status quo, and we'd say, you need to either repent or, or you got to go, because this is the status quo. This is how life works, and we can all agree that it's not ideal. It's actually quite disruptive and bad for us, but this is how it is, and so you either need to comply with it or, or you got to go. And that's what's going on here between Judah and Samson. In this scene of the Samson stories, uh, we see Samson is spoiling the status quo. The status quo is that the Philistines are the rulers of God's people. And, and maybe we can admit that we don't like that. It's not ideal. But that's just the way things are. That's the new normal. And so, quite dramatically, in verse 11, you see 3,000 men of Judah come to confront Samson. Just, just think about this. Think about what this is saying. It's not, you know, a, a, a group of five men, 10 men, maybe even upwards of 20, 30, 40, or 50 men. This is 3,000 men confronting one individual. Clearly, at the very least, the men of Judah are taking this Samson threat very, very seriously. They're saying, we are, are making it very clear to you, Samson, that we aren't cool with the way you're operating. You, you are disrupting things, uh, you're, you're poking the bear, the Philistines who rule over us, and you're endangering all of our lives. So they come to him and they say, look, we, we maybe can agree that the Philistines are bad, but this is the way things are. The Philistines rule over us and you need to get with the program. 
This is the status quo. Uh, we've cozied up to it. We've just decided to treat it like the new normal. We're going to comply with this, and you need to get on board as well. So Judah comes in verse 12 and says, hey, we're going to bind you. We're going to take you into custody, and we're going to hand you over to the Philistines. So in other words, unlike any other judge in the stories of, of judges, all your predecessors, Samson, we aren't going to rally to you. We're not going to mobilize and get behind you and unite and follow you into battle against the Philistines. We're not going to resist them. We are going to comply with them. And we haven't come to, to bolster your confidence in us and rally to you as our leader. Uh, we've come to tell you uh, that we are going to comply with the Philistines. And we're here to bind you and hand you over to them. Now, there are all kinds of examples throughout human history and nowadays of, of this kind of thing. I mean, a really obvious example back in the 1940s is how many German citizens knew that the Third Reich was not a good a good group of people, it's not a good political system, but we just need to put our head down, we just need to not upset the apple cart, and just we need to just you know, keep to ourselves. Just adopt the status quo. It's not healthy, it's not good, we can kind of see that, we sense that, we feel that, but we're just going to roll with this because to do otherwise seems, seems dangerous or unwise. And there's a lot of examples throughout, throughout human history of stuff like this, and there are too many, in fact, to, to go down that road right now. But there is one example that I think we absolutely have to look at because it was a major point of contention for Jesus. A, a big emphasis for Jesus when it came to disrupting the status quo. In other words, Jesus disrupted the status quo. And you see this, for example, really clearly in Mark chapter 7, where Jesus is talking to the religious community He's talking to people who faithfully go to synagogue, right? They're part of a religious community. They're committed uh, followers of, of Yahweh. They've, they've read the Torah. They've studied God's word. And Jesus hits them with some hard truths. He says in Mark 7, you honor me with your lips. You show up for worship. You, you sing the songs. You memorize scripture. You say the verses. But your hearts are far from me. In vain do you worship me. And here's the crux of, of the issue. He says, you teach your traditions as the major points of emphasis. You, you say the main doctrines, the things that we really have to be all about, they aren't what God says. They're, they're your traditions. They're, they're the things you're excited about, the things that you prefer. And then Jesus actually gets a little snarky. Believe it or not, he gets sarcastic with them. He says, y'all have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God, God's points of emphasis, in favor of establishing your own points of emphasis, your own man-made traditions. So in other words, your emphasis on rule-keeping and religious decorum and religious etiquette and protocols and theological trivia, it's actually crushing you. It's a burden that you're heaping up on your back and other people's back, and it's, and it's that system, that status quo. Now, obviously, Jesus, when he said stuff like this, people were irritated. They were pretty angry with Jesus, and essentially their reaction when he said stuff like this was, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are for telling us this and, and telling us stuff like, like this, like saying it in, to us in such a, an inflammatory and confrontationist? Don't you realize that? that? That the way you teach and what you teach, it's highly, it's highly offensive. So in places like Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 16, 
uh, people will come to Jesus and they'll say, we need to see a sign from you. We need to see a sign that confirms for us that, that you are uh, authoritative enough to actually speak to us like this because you've ruffled our feathers. And it's not that Jesus hasn't given them signs. I mean, he's done all kinds of signs. It's not actually that they're asking for a miraculous sign to confirm that Jesus has the authority to say what he's saying. What they're asking for is, give us a sign that shows us that you will comply with the status quo. Look, Jesus, we have a certain way of doing things around here. I don't know if, you, if you're getting that. But you need to give us a sign that shows us that you're on board with our agenda. Because you keep, you keep saying things and doing things that are, not, that are not okay with us. So here's the ultimatum. Show us a sign that shows us that you can play ball. You can play according to our rules or else. So now the question is, how, how does Jesus respond when people demand a sign like that? Well, here's what he says, and I quote, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, let's pause here. Jesus is referencing who? Jonah. Who's Jonah? Uh, Jonah is what I like to call the most terrible person presented to us in Scripture. He is, because like there's a lot of terrible characters in Scripture, a lot of villainous people portrayed in Scripture. But Jonah, uh, he's the only one that had this moment with God where God is saying, I am never wrong, I am God, I am perfect, I am infinitely wise. And I want to show the villainous, wicked, immoral Ninevites, I want to show them my mercy. And I'm telling you, I'm God, and what I say is right is right. And I'm telling you, I desire to show the Ninevites mercy. And I get that you have a problem with the Ninevites, Jonah. I get that they are, are a highly evil, horrible group of people. I get that. But it doesn't change the fact that my desire is to show them mercy. Now, I'm going to give you a chance to repent, Jonah, because he's acting all huffy and he's acting like a pouty, petulant child, right, sitting outside the city of Nineveh, demanding that God pour out wrath on that city. And God says, I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to admit that you're wrong and I'm right. And what does Jonah say? No, God, I got nothing to apologize for. I was right to resist your command to go to the city because I knew that even though you gave me a message of wrath, somehow you would orchestrate your mercy because that's the way you are. You don't care about justice. You don't care about right and wrong. I am a man of principle, God, and apparently you're not. It's pathetic. You are wrong, God. And I am right. That's how the story of Jonah ends. He's bad. He's a terrible, terrible person. He's a horrible role model. Why is Jesus appealing to him as a sign? The sign of Jonah. Of all the people in Scripture that Jesus could have appealed to, and he, he could say, this person serves as a sign of what I have come to do. Well, Jesus obviously isn't opposed to using terrible people as signs of what he has come to accomplish. At a minimum, that should be one of the takeaways here. And as we've looked at the character and the person and the work of Samson, we got to say he's not a great guy. He's not a good role model. And yet I would say we, we, could, we could observe that just as Samson was ordained by God not to comply with the status quo with the Philistines, so the Son of Man refuses to reply, uh, comply with the status quo. 
Let me say that again. Just as Samson will not comply with the status quo, so the Son of Man refuses to comply with the sinful status quo. And Jesus isn't just disrupting the status quo, he's teaching. So, so in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has disrupted everybody's lives. He's made everybody feel awkward and unsettled. And then he says something like this. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, he says, Now I want you to go and learn something. He's teaching. He doesn't just disrupt, he teaches. He says to uh, highly educated, theologically credentialed experts, like Pharisees and scribes, he says, I know you've read the Torah I know you've probably got Leviticus memorized, but you need to go. You missed it. The whole emphasis of the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, the law, all of these sacrificial, tedious details, the point was never about you performing that sacrificial system. That was never the point. The point was that I desire mercy. I desire in his very famous sermon in Matthew 5 through 7, where, where he says in Matthew 5, uh, the point here is that you would be perfect as God is perfect. So, so the takeaway can't be, now get out there and get to work and accomplish perfection. It, it should make, when you read Leviticus, when you read Deuteronomy, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, the takeaway should be, I, I can't do all of this. And you come to God with your hands out begging and saying, how am I supposed to achieve this be perfect standard? And Jesus says, I can work with that. Because the, the objective was never for you to perform for me and accomplish perfection. The, the objective was for you to come to me like a beggar and receive the perfection I'm going to give to you. Because that, that would be in accordance with my mercy. And that's what I desire. I desire not to see you perform I desire to give you my performance. I desire to give you my mercy. That's the whole point. And so he says in Matthew 9, 13, you got to go and learn what this means. He says this to PhD level Torah theologians. I mean, they, they've got it in their mind. We've already learned there is everything there is to learn. And Jesus is treating them like kindergartners. And he's like, well, you didn't learn the main, the main point. You missed the emphasis. And you heap up regulations and religious decorum and all these ridiculous theological protocols on people and they can't bear it. And I have compassion for those people. You're breaking the backs of my sheep and I'm not going to allow it. I'm going to disrupt that. So Jesus, he comes and he disrupts their status quo. And of course, as you've read through the Gospels probably, you know that the, the religious community was very concerned uh, with not with not only how Jesus taught and how, how he said things, but how he responded to their criticisms and concerns. And so the religious community says, man, this has massive implications. If, we're, if we permit Jesus to say this kind of thing, I mean, in a sense, if we let Jesus off the leash, he could wreck the whole system. He's, he's a huge threat. And that's the second point. Yeah, he's here to wreck the system. He's, he's absolutely here to turn the world upside down. He's not going to do it the way we would think to do it. Or another way of saying this, you, you can't domesticate Jesus. He's untamable. You, you could try to put a leash on him, but you, next thing you know, you turn around, he's not on the leash anymore. He, he'll just take it off if he wants. He does whatever he wants. You're not going to put him in your little predictable, controlled environment and say, now, Jesus, stay right here. Just, just be the, the version of a savior that I want you to be. He won't do that. And Samson is another sign of that. Samson is, is bound with these new ropes 
He's these strong ropes. There's nobody, no way anybody could break out of these ropes. He's handed over to, to this militia, this group of, of Philistines who have come to take him into custody. And God's whole point here, what God displays for us, is that Samson is indomitable. You can't domesticate him. So in verses 14 and 15, with quite a lot of flourish, God says, here's what happened when Samson was handed over by these 3,000 uh, people from Judah to, to the Philistines. It says, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson. Uh, these new ropes, they just melt off. They, they just melt away. And then uh, Samson doesn't have a weapon. He doesn't have a sword. He doesn't have a spear. But he sees this, this bone from a, from a donkey skeleton, the jawbone of the donkey sitting on the ground there. And he picks up this, this junk, uh, donkey, combining words, <laughs> donkey's jawbone, and uh, he uses it as a weapon of mass destruction. And I, I feel like in some ways, we're, we're really not good at, at really imagining what this scene is portraying, so I want to kind of push you to do this. I mean, I know we don't have time machines, but let's pretend we did. And, and you got in a time machine and you went back to this moment. I mean, just really think about it. What, what would you see? He's, he's taking this bone and he is bashing skulls, like blood, brains, bl just gruesome, gritty stuff. And it's not just like four or five, a thousand, a thousand bodies just piling up. And one dude's just going nuts. I mean, it is such a surreal, gruesome, kind of gut-riching scene. And, and God's saying it. I'm not making this up. I'm, I'm not here to make you feel uncomfortable. But as one of my mentors says, I want to be as earthy as the Bible is. I, I want to agree with what God says. And this is what God's portraying to us. Y'all, this isn't just non-compliance. This, this is a complete overthrow of the system. That, that's what's being portrayed here. It's, it's so in your face. It is so brash what God is communicating through this sign of Samson. And again, I think all scriptures point us to, to the ultimate accomplishments of Jesus. And so Jesus comes and I would say he fulfills what this sign is pointing us to. Jesus comes and he wrecks the system. And so I've already said Jesus disrupted the status quo, but then he always, he always just kept pushing it. He kept pushing it to the point of, of what the Pharisees certainly thought of as absurd. So, so in Matthew chapter 9, we studied this last week in Sunday school, uh, you can see that Jesus is making people bristle. He's, he's saying things uh, in ways that are clearly inflammatory and unsettling. Um, and then if you keep reading in Matthew chapter 9, you, you see that Jesus just keeps going with this, this disruption to the point where he's really clearly wrecking the system. And so uh, Jesus makes this point that, that I've come to forgive really horrible, wretched people. And so as you keep reading in Matthew chapter 9, uh, Jesus then goes to a tax collector's booth. I mean, he said, I didn't come primarily to sit in the synagogue and feel like a really, you know, solid, righteous, you know, Pharisee or scribe. I, I didn't come here primarily to hang around the temple in the synagogue and feel super religious. I came here to save sinners. And I meant what I said. And so the next thing he does is he goes out to this very sinful environment, this tax collector's booth. And he doesn't just talk to a tax collector, Matthew, the tax collector. What does he do? He recruits Matthew to join his leadership team. 
Yo, that is crazy. Jesus didn't recruit anybody from the local synagogue seminary. He recruits guys like Matthew. This is an organized crime official. <laughs> this is a tax collector. If Jesus is interacting with the Jewish community, they have certain ideas of what is pure, what is righteous, what is holy, and tax collectors fall definitively outside of that scope. There's no way someone who has sold themselves out to the Roman government and now serves as a tax collector, there's no way that person could get anywhere near God, let alone be part of God's apostolic leadership team. It's like, it's like Jesus is trying to be provocative. I'm not just going to hang out with these people. I'm going to incorporate them into my system and employ them as my apostles. So if, if Jesus calls a guy like Matthew to be a part of his apostolic leadership team, well then, what do you think Matthew's reaction is going to be? Matthew is going to say, well, you should come to my house. You should come meet my friends. Right? This house that, that's paid for by the stolen money. That, that I traffic in. And the party that's financed by, by all of the funds that I've stolen from the Jewish community. You come to my house. And Jesus knows there's going to be debauchery at this party. It's a tax collector party. There's going to be gluttony and drunkenness. There are going to be prostitutes there. That's the normal tax collector party situation. And so the Pharisees know this and they say, there's no way Jesus can be God. Because God would not behave like this. God would not go to a party like that. It's clear Jesus is not here to play by our rules. He's following a very different set of rules. Right after that, or a couple chapters later, maybe the Pharisees come and they ask a question about fasting. They say, can you at least answer us a question about this fasting rule? And, and Jesus uses that as yet another opportunity to say, look, you're, you're clearly trying to take my way and fit it in your system. And I'm here to tell you, that's like putting new wine in old wineskins. It's not going to work. You can't fit me in your system. You either, you either drink from my system, you get totally on board with my system, or nothing. But you're not going to fit me in your system. That's how he answers the fasting question. Of course, you could keep going. I mean, there's so many obvious examples of Jesus wrecking the system. What about those scenes where he goes into the temple and literally just starts wrecking the place? That's really obvious. It's very in your face. If somebody came here right now and pushed the, the pulpit over and kicked the piano off the stage, you'd say, that is, that is really disruptive, obviously. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's coming into a religious environment, and he's wrecking it. But there are a lot of less obvious ways he does this as well. What about the prolific way that Jesus insisted on teaching in parables? This is a quotation from Matthew 13. It says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. And then Matthew writes, Indeed, Jesus said nothing to them without a parable. It's a pretty extreme way to say it. He, he, he never said anything without using a parable. So we know that the Pharisees and the scribes were not real thrilled with Jesus using parables. I mean, they prided themselves on having like what they considered to be really meaty theological dialogue and, and debates and, and lectures. And then here comes Jesus with this infantile milk, this simple childlike storytelling approach. And they're like, that, what, are you, what are you doing? Why do you talk to us like that? Talk to us like we're children. And Jesus says, I speak to you in parables because seeing you do not see and hearing you do not hear, nor do you understand. In other words, Jesus is saying, I demand that you become childlike and that you receive what I emphasize as true spiritual meat. 
And the fact is, you just don't have a category for that. And you're committed to having life on your terms. And so you reject me. It's not that you don't follow the stories. It's not that you don't understand what I'm saying. It's that you hate it and you reject it. Seeing, you choose not to see it. You shut your eyes tight against what God shows you. You, you hear it, but you don't really want to embrace it. You refuse to embrace my way. And I think we all need to check ourselves on this because here, here's the fundamental contrast in our agenda versus God's agenda. Uh, when we come to the, to the only true and living God, uh, I mean, the big, very appropriate question is, you know, what is he offering to us? You know, what are we getting out of this? If we come to God, what's he given us? If you come to his word, what you're getting are a lot of stories, and he inescapably involves you in the lives of other sinners. Let me say that again. God, what are the benefits of following God? He'll give you a lot of stories, and he'll make you live life with sinners. We don't, let's just start with the second one. Sinners? No, thanks. I don't. I would rather kind of keep things light, superficial, surfacey. And then just kind of, you know, like a cocktail party, just kind of mingle around. Like, I don't want to get into your sinful life. And I definitely don't want you getting anywhere near my real sin stuff. That's like surgery, right? I mean, that requires me to, like, surrender to something that's very invasive and intimate. And I, that's just, no, no thank you. I don't want life with sinners, if I'm being honest. And what about this stories business? I would rather have solutions. I mean, I got a lot of problems in life. I, there's a lot of uh, anxieties and stressors and life situations, and I want to come to God and say, give me a formula. Like, give me a prescription. Give me an answer to my questions. Say, here, take two of these, call me in the morning, you'll be fine. But when I come to God, what do I actually get? I get, I get a bunch of stories. I come to him with all these stressful things in life, and I say, so what you got for me, God? And he says, read the life of David. Have you all ever read the life of David? It's not helpful. It's just, it's like the, the water's muddy, and then you read the life of David, and the water is really muddy. Right? So I go to God with my relational issues, and I say, give, give me a prescription. Cure me. Give me a solution. And then he shows me his word, which has this information about David, and it's, it's like my relational issues, but way worse. It's, it's David's horrible dynamic uh, full of tension and drama with his father-in-law, Saul. It's David's drama and dysfunction with his wife, Michael. It's David's drama with his nephew, Joab. Even David's best friend, Jonathan. You realize there's a lot of tension there. Like, if I zoom in on that story, Jonathan, if I'm David, Jonathan doesn't join me out in the wilderness in the cave of Adullam. I have a pretty simple standard for loyalty. If you claim to be my best friend and I'm hurting, living in a cave, you come to be with me. You don't keep working for the guy that's trying to kill me. Some best friend you are, Jonathan. And this is what God gives us. He says, I'm not here to make life make sense to you and provide you a formula for efficiency and productivity. I'm here to tell you stories. And believe it or not, as you steward the mystery of these stories, you will, you will grow in maturity, true maturity. You will grow in faith. You will grow in your relationship with God. If there is one thing that's clear as you follow the stories of David, it's when you zoom in and you read some of his diary entries, 
For example, Psalm 51, of all the things that are very, very obviously unclear about David's life, you zoom into his, his diary entries and you come to a place like Psalm 51 and you see the, the one thing that David can be really clear about amidst all the muddy waters of his relationships is that he is the chief sinner. You can't, you can't really know the heart and the thoughts of other people. You think you can. I know what they're thinking. I know why they said that. You know what this is about. We do that all the time. And that's actually part of our sin. Because you can't read people's minds. You can't really evaluate the details and complexities of their motives. You can't. And you certainly, let's all at least agree on this, you cannot repent for them. So you can have them dead to rights. I know what this is about. Doesn't change the fact that the only constructive way forward is repentance. And you can't do that for them. But, good news, you can do that for you. You can repent. solutions and making excuses, and he supplements it with stories and this chief reality that you're a sinner. Because that's the way of true constructive life and fruitfulness. If there's one thing you can learn from all these myriad of stories that God tells us in Scripture, it's found in this summation statement in Romans 11. Romans 11 says this, and buckle up because you're not going to like it. Here's what it says. God has consigned all to disobedience. So just kind of sit with that for a second. He gave you over to disobedience. Your heart wants to disobey. Your heart wants to sin. God consigned you to it. I just don't, I honestly don't feel great about that. I, if I were God, if I was all good and all powerful, I, would, I just would never have allowed the elect to disobey. I wouldn't have allowed it. I would have intervened before the disobedience. But that's what it says he did. He consigned all to disobedience. And here's why. It says why he did it. He did it so that he could have mercy on all those who were consigned to disobedience. So this checks out with what God has said all throughout Scripture. My desire is to not give you this productive, formulaic, formulaic predictable, predictable life. My desire is to enter into the messiness of your life and to lavish my mercy on you and for you to marinate in the mercy and to put away your quest for formulas and quick fixes and easy solutions and avoiding sinners because that's messy and difficult. My, my desire is that you would know my mercy. This is the big thing that I'm offering. Luke chapter 18, uh, Jesus tells this parable. He says, two men go into the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, one is a tax collector. The Pharisee prays first. The, the Pharisee's prayer goes like this. God, thank you that I am not bad. Amen. That's short, shortened version. He says, I, I'm not like other bad men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not an adulterer. And then he notices this tax collector in the building. He says, I'm not like him, for example. I'm, I'm so thankful. Thank you, God, that I'm not bad. Uh, subtext, I, I'm very grateful that I don't need mercy. Or I need it a little bit, like marginally, but I don't need it as like the main thing of my life. Not like these other people, extortioners, tax collectors, adulterers. Thank you that I fast and I give tithes. Amen. That's his prayer. Now contrast that with the tax collector. Jesus says, now the, the tax collector, he, he wouldn't even really approach the altar. <laughs> he just felt so ashamed of how wretched he was. And so he stood far off. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. 
He beat his chest and he cried to God saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus collector um, went home justified rather than the other. Let me, let me say, if you have excuses, right, you, you'll admit, I'm not perfect, but honestly, like, I know why I did what I did. I know why I did it. And I got nothing to apologize for. I, don't, I, I have an excuse. I have a reason. Um, and honestly, I'm doing pretty good. I, I have some kind of argument of my own merit. Let, let me tell you what the Bible just screams at you. You don't belong to God. If you make excuses... And you have arguments of like, I'm doing it right. I'm doing it pretty good. You don't belong to Jesus. You just don't. You probably, relative to a lot of other people, you're probably a pretty decent person. I don't deny that. But you don't belong to Jesus. But if you're evil and you desperately need a Savior uh, to not just say, I want to give you some counsel, but to say, I want to experience my body breaking and then I want to give you my body as your bread. I want you to eat my body. That sounds crazy. If, if, if God takes on flesh and says, I, I'm going to die for you. I want, I want to pour out my blood and I want you to drink my blood. I mean, what would, what would compel you to, to receive such a violent, jarring invitation? Eat my body, drink my blood. And the only thing that will drive you to do it is if you understand that you're You're evil. You're you're not someone who can merit their place in God's family. You need infinite forgiveness. That's how you're justified. And that really is the critical question for all of us. How can I justify myself? How can I know I'm okay? In John chapter 6, Jesus says, here's here's how you know um, the work, the fundamental work of your life has been accomplished and you're justified. It's not that you do the work, it's that you believe in the one who was sent to do the work for you. That's what he says in John 6. Your contribution, your work is to believe in the one who came to do the work for you. And when Jesus says that, people immediately say, well, what sign are you going to give us to back that up? And then Jesus starts talking about the Passover. And he says, the Passover is all about me. That slain lamb, you know what that was really about? That's about me. And then he issues this, this statement, this invitation, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then how do the disciples, right, the, the crowds of people following Jesus, how do they respond to this? Uh, well, there's a delegation that comes and they say, what you're saying is very offensive and unpalatable. <laughs> it's hard to stomach what you're saying. Jesus, it's a hard saying. Who can listen to you talk like this? And many of his disciples turn back and no longer walk with him because he's wrecking their system because it's not a system of merit and excuses, which is what we traffic in by default. Jesus flagrantly says, I am here to wreck your system of merit and I'm here to eclipse it and supplant it with a system of mercy. That's what I'm offering. And that's the sign of Samson and really personal specific way that's the sign of Samson right here at the end of this chapter we're studying this morning it's clearly mercy and not merit in the story of Samson Samson's not a good role model he's not a good guy the whole the whole question of why would God why would God use a guy like Samson it can't be because Samson has merited this opportunity it's it's so in your face it is an emphatic emblem of God's mercy 
So look at how this, this chapter ends. Verse 18 and 19. Samson, after he's slaughtered a thousand Philistines, uh, he hadn't taken a drink in a while. He's very, very parched. Right? He's dying of dehydration. And he's like, I'm dying of thirst. I'm weary, God. Uh, and, and then he says, and I'm at risk of falling into the hands of the uncircumcised. Now, think about how God could respond to this, this prayer. God could say, okay, Samson, hold on. So you're concerned with purity? Because you just predicated your prayer on, you know, you don't want me to end up with the uncircumcised. Okay, so you, that's your angle. You are arguing that you were motive, you're motivated in your prayer life by your, your desire for purity. Let me just back up a couple chapters. He's marrying into the Philistines. And his mom and dad are trying to say... That, don't do this. And, and he said, get out of my way, mom and dad. This is what I want. This is what my lusts demand. And I demand to, for you to arrange this marriage for me with the Philistines. He's a hypocrite. There's no way Samson is concerned for his purity. God could say, look, Samson, you got yourself into this mess. You're on your own. Honestly, Samson doesn't even display a contrite spirit. He doesn't apologize in his prayer. He doesn't say, look, God, I know I've not been the greatest judge. I know that I've, you know, done a lot of bad things. But if you would be willing to give me a drink of water, I'd really appreciate it. Like, that would be some level of contrition. He just says, help. Kind of demands it. Like, help. You, I mean, you going to do anything? That's his prayer in a nutshell. And God's response is to provide. He miraculously provides water. And, and so now you're thinking, okay, Samson, after he's revived, you know, he's refreshed, he'll, when you're dehydrated like this, I mean, you're not thinking straight. So once he's revived, he'll say, oh, you know, God has shown me such mercy. In fact, let's name this place. God is so merciful. I don't deserve it. And he is so merciful. But that's not what Samson names this place. Uh, the name of the place is in Hakor, which means springs of him who called. Waiter, I need water. Hey, Samson, how'd you get this life-saving water? I asked for it. I actually, I say jump, God says how high. I say here's what I want and I get what I want. This is the spring of him who called for it. I called for water and water was brought. That's, that's what the name of the place is. And again, why doesn't God strike him down? Like, why do we have that whole story of Jonah that I alluded to? Why didn't God just blast Jonah? Go back to Genesis 3. Why didn't God just destroy Adam and Eve? Why did he make them coverings? Why did God shed the blood of innocent animals to cover them? Instead of just destroying them. Because he desires to show mercy. And that's embedded even in this last verse of, of the chapter. Samson judged Israel for 20 years. Is, is Samson deserving of this station? I mean, did, does he deserve to be the judge of Israel for 20 years? No. It, it's this emphatic, in-your-face emblem of God saying, I, I'm not doing it your way. I'm not doing it in accordance with merit. I'm doing it because I desire to show you my mercy. In fact, I want you to eat the body and drink the blood of... That's what God's about. He's so in your face with it. 
So let me just end with giving you a few examples. All of us in this room are children. You may be in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, but you're a child. And, and all children fundamentally know this is true. Your life as a child is holistically not about merit. Like there are some things that you get to do, like you do some chores, you do a good job, maybe you get an allowance. But you know your, your status as a member of the family is not because you know, your parents were looking in for some children, they were in the market for some kids, and you know, they, did, they shopped for like the best one and they got you because you, you performed and you impressed them. No, I mean, your parents know you, they have the dirt on you, they know that you, you deserve to be kicked out of the family. That's true. <laughs> but they, I mean, they fight tooth and nail to love you and to provide for you and to, to lavish their grace and mercy on you. It's not about merit. It's, it's about mercy. It, your, your life is, a, is, a, is a, an example of this because you're a child. You get to be a friend. You, if you stay with friends with anybody long enough, uh, you know, man, your friends have forgiven you. you you've said things in ways that just, it's at least inexcusable. Maybe borderline unforgivable. But the whole paradigm of friendship according to God is yeah but there's mercy there's mercy when your friend encourages you and supports you that's mercy you don't deserve that when, when a friend faithfully wounds you the Bible says that's mercy too you get to be a spouse you don't deserve your spouse for those of you who are married you're not a good spouse that's not why they're married to you you, you get to be a spouse because God wants you to steward the mystery of forgiveness and bearing fruit and keeping with repentance and mercy. That's why you're married. It's not because you're amazing. It's because you're a sinner. And God wants you to know in a very intimate, personal way more, more of the depths of the mystery of his mercy. You're, you're a member of the church because God wants you to know mercy. I, I like to tell people when they come through the Roots class, um, you know, everybody's looking for a church to be a part of, right, if you're a Christian. And there's all kinds of churches in Charlotte, and some have these great, like, kids programs, and some have great music, and some have these you know, beautiful campuses manicured, and, um, and, you know, all these great things. Uh, if you come to ECPC and you get involved, uh, here's what I think the Bible says must be true. The main thing we're offering you, um, the main thing you get to do if you're a part of this community is you get to admit that you're a a sinner, and you get to receive the forgiveness of God and others. That's the main thing you get to do. We can go on, but that's the main, most reoccurring thing. And it's not to sound mean, it's to say that this is what God wants for you. He desires to show you mercy, and he's surrounded you with signs to really show you this and to provoke you into this, this place where we would see and savor the unparalleled love and mercy of God. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would make us stewards of your mysterious mercy. And the more we study, not in an academic sense, but really personally as, as our primary food, study your word, the more we will be, be brought into this profound mystery. And the more we'll, we will be forced to not just read about it, but experience it for ourselves. 
Um, God, we, we thank you for the ways that you show us stories of reconciliation and forgiveness. Um, a couple weeks ago, you showed me that through one of the last seasons of, uh, one of the last shows in Ted Lasso. <laughs> you showed me that forgiveness is something that makes me want to weep with joy. And you show me that all throughout your scripture. And you show me that in, in the relationships that surround me. And uh, we pray that we, we would be always, always um, joyfully participating in your mercy-oriented workmanship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.